on Textbooked. I think in countries like China, citizens are a bit more suspicious to begin with. They know they live in an authoritarian society. They know there's one party rule. They know the government is not always interested in their freedom, to put it mildly. They are actually more aware of the dangers. The problem in the United States is that we have the illusion that government is well-intended. listening to Untextbooked. This is a podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Victor Yi. And you're listening to Untextbooked. As human beings, our privacy is one of our most basic needs. It's also one of our most basic rights. In the U.S. Constitution, the Fourth Amendment protects citizens from unreasonable search and seizure by the government. Keyword, unreasonable. But the rise of the internet has complicated things. Nowadays, the average person is no stranger to sharing or oversharing on the internet. So when it comes to privacy, where do we draw the line? It's hard to say. The internet, of course, was not around when the Constitution was created, so there is a lot of gray area. Several nations, including Canada, Germany, and Argentina, explicitly spell out protection of its citizens' privacy in their laws. But in the United States, there is no central legislation. Over time, the U.S. government has actually started to monitor its own citizens through private corporations, all in the name of national security. We're still a democracy, right? A nation built on trust in its citizens? Last time I checked? Yeah. Can a country protect its citizens and violate them at the same time? Shh. Big Brother might be listening, 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 listening. On this episode of Untextbooked, Victor interviews his professor, Robert Shear, better known as Bob by his students, author of They Know Everything About You, How Data Collection Corporations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy. Today, we'll take a close look at how the U.S. government has abandoned constitutional privacy protections in favor of 24-7 citizen surveillance and what we, as citizens, can do to protect ourselves and hold our nation accountable. Thank you so much, Professor Shear, for this amazing conversation around just your journey being a journalist and also writing your book, They Know Everything About You. I know that I've had the pleasure of being in your class and talking more about these specific topics. In that regard, for reporters, what do you think their role is in upholding the state of democracy? Keep their listening ears open. That's the main thing. It's what you tell children. Everyone's got a story. Every guy's got an angle. Everyone's out to manipulate you, but also tell you the truth, whether they're famous, whether they're not. My journalistic model is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So when I'm interviewing people who don't have power or are not familiar with the exercise, I'm very careful 
to remind them that this is going to be published, that this is journalism and so forth. And when I'm doing powerful people, they already know. They got their PR people there <laughs> lined up and everything. Particularly when I was at the LA Times, I got to interview a lot of well-known people, including people who became president of the United States, Bill Clinton or Richard Nixon had already been president, or Ronald Reagan, the first President Bush. And I did Jimmy Carter for Playboy. It's a rather famous interview where he talked about lust in his heart. But I've also done a lot of journalism where I've talked to people who got evicted from their homes or lost their jobs or were discriminated against. And so my big advice to journalists is, first of all, give a damn. What you're writing about should be important to people's lives. And you should do an honest, serious job. That's your main obligation, even more important than making a living at it. Gotcha. And specifically, like your book that we are kind of discussing today, which is called They Know Everything About You, you make a very critical point in explaining the importance of understanding surveillance. So for those in the audience, what is surveillance and how does it look like for the common citizen here in America? Well, they know what surveillance is. They just don't use the word anymore because they think it's a shopping opportunity. I mean, you can't go on the internet without somebody asking you, can you use your location or use your other information or tell you that your information is going to be mined. Data mining is the oxygen now. They won't talk to you if they can't mine your data. That's how they make their money. And you're not a customer of Facebook or Google. They're giving it to you for nothing, right? They claim. And then the people listening to this, and particularly if they're younger, in high school, what have you, they should beware. Buyer beware. You know, why are they giving it to you for nothing? Why can you set up your Facebook page or do your Google searches and they don't charge you? It's because you're not the customer. You're the mark. You're being hustled and you're being hustled for your private data. And then they market, they do targeted marketing to that data. That's why when you're online looking for a pair of sneakers, suddenly there are sneaker ads all over the place, you know, or car ads are all over the place or entertainment or food. And it doesn't matter where you are, or you could be yelping something, you could be Googling something. And that information is used to do targeting advertising, to manipulate you. That's why my book is called They Know Everything About You. They do. They are the corporations that make profit off you. They are the government that gets the corporations to give them their data, like in the United States. Thanks to Edward Snowden, we learned how extensive this government spying was on us, which is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment of U.S. Constitution, which goes back to English common law and protects the ordinary person against government surveillance. But now they use the modern technology to surveil you at every moment. And we've entered a dystopian world, the kind written about by George Orwell and Aldous Huxley. Orwell's 1984 and Huxley's Brave New World were both groundbreaking novels. Both depicted societies where citizens were manipulated through various forms of government control. While Brave New World demonstrated government control through sex, drugs, and consumption, in the book 1984, the tools of control were military power, harsh surveillance, imprisonment, and torture. It's interesting to witness how life has imitated their art today. Earlier, you mentioned Edward Snowden, who 
is a particularly controversial figure in just history in general with him bringing forth the understanding that the U.S. government does collect private information from its citizens. So could you talk a little bit more about who he is and whether or not to what extent we as American citizens should praise him for protecting the rights and data of the American public? Well, Edward Snow is one of the great heroes of American life, along with Daniel Ellsberg and you know, I can name others. He's a whistleblower. He was working as a contractor for the National Security Agency, an agency that's not supposed to spy on us, and but it does, and prevented actually by law from spying on us. And James Clapper, who's now a, a, a commentator on MSNBC and CNN, you know, but was head of the NSA and lied about whether they spy on us. He lied to Congress. And basically, we have something called the Fourth Amendment, which says that no government agency can get your information, come into your home. But they, you know, the Roberts Court, the Supreme Court, has extended it to the use of new technology of the internet and so forth. They have to have a specific warrant. They can't go on a fishing expedition. Your home is your castle. That goes back to English common law. The American Revolution was fought over your right to privacy, private space, and prevent the intrusion. Well, the intrusion comes now in the world of the internet, and we get hustled into first giving it up to private organizations like Google or Facebook to facilitate our shopping experience. You want to go find a restaurant or a movie or sporting event, and you turn over all your data. And what Snowden revealed is that that stuff was okay as long as the government didn't have it, because the Constitution, and particularly our Bill of Rights, protects us against government excess. Well, we learned, thanks to Snowden, that the government was grabbing all this information, sometimes with the cooperation of Google, Facebook, and the others, sometimes just by breaking into their fiber optic cables under the ocean, or having backdoor access through your iPhone or what have you. And so without Snowden, we wouldn't have known much of that. And he bravely gave that information to the major news organizations, which managed to win a Pulitzer Prizes and so forth from that. And then the government branded him, uh, accused him of espionage, made him a traitor, yanked his papers, left him stranded at an airport, you know, and then he finally got asylum. He's now in Russia and now he's branded a traitor, can't come home. So that's how we treat the true patriots, whistleblowers. It's a sad story, and it shows the desperate circumstance of our country right now. And, you know, there was a time there where people in Silicon Valley applauded Edward Snowden as a true hero. Now they've abandoned him, just like they abandoned Julian Assange, another terrific whistleblower who told her what our government was doing, that it was lying to us. And we need people like that, you know. That's why we have a constitution. It's to protect us against overzealous governments and to protect individuals who speak the truth. But we have forgotten that, you know. I recommend that any high school student listening to it get a hold of George Washington's farewell address in which he reminds us to beware of the impostures of pretended patriotism. I'll repeat that again. Beware of the impostures of pretended patriotism. He was warning us. This was the former great general, first president of the United States, and his farewell address 
telling us that patriotism would be used to deceive us. It's the same message that another great general, President Eisenhower, warned about in his farewell address when he warned us about the military-industrial complex using national security, the fear of an enemy, same message that came from Orwell, basically to betray our freedoms. I think that's what's going on now in America. And in the age of the internet, spying on the citizens is made a national pastime. Everybody does it, every company. And unfortunately, the government can scoop up all of this information and use it basically to destroy your freedom. And any kid that's listening to this, think to you say, well, I don't have to worry because I'm not going to do anything wrong. But what if you have a bad government and they think being in a civil rights demonstration or demanding, you know, rights of gender identification or the right to choice in birthing or anything? What if the government decides that's not acceptable? They can use that information to destroy you. And our whole constitution is based on the idea that government will do bad things. And we have to be protected as individuals against government power. And we've lost that message. That's what the American experiment is supposed to be all about. Individuals having freedom, not government being able to smash into your email and read everything, which they think they can do legitimately, which they can't. It's unconstitutional. So, I mean, fortunately in the U.S., we have what you talked about earlier, which is the Fourth Amendment, which kind of protects at least our own citizens' rights to just unreasonable searches by the government. But how does the Fourth Amendment kind of play out in non-democratic nations or communist nations like China and Russia? Well, first of all, we have it on the books. It's in our Constitution. But the Supreme Court, which has said that local police departments can't grab your cell phone and crack the code and get that information and bring new charges to you. Yes, the Roberts Court has declared that, but they haven't declared what the CIA does and what the NSA does and what the FBI does. They haven't applied that yet. And our Fourth Amendment is very much contested here. It'd be a, a cruel illusion to think it protects you from government surveillance, because it doesn't. We have the most effective government surveillance of any society in the world because we're technologically most advanced. And we hide behind the idea that, hey, all we're doing is facilitating your consumer practice. I think in countries like China, which you mentioned, I think citizens are a bit more suspicious to begin with. They know they live in an authoritarian society. They know there's one party rule. They know the government is not always interested in their freedom, to put it mildly. They are actually more aware of the dangers. The problem in the United States, and this is what George Orwell and Aldous Huxley try to call attention to in their dystopian novels, is that in the United States, we have the illusion that government is well-intended, at least many people do, that they wouldn't spy on you, that they wouldn't hurt you. Well, that's not the case. You know, our government under Lyndon Johnson and the FBI under Jed Hoover went out to destroy Martin Luther King. That's not fake history. That's well-documented history. They spied on him 24-7. They tried to set him up. They tried to drive him to suicide, our great civil rights hero. If there's some high school student listening to us, ask your teacher, ask your social science teacher history, is this true what I just heard on this program? that the FBI and the Democrats then were in charge, Lyndon Johnson, that they actually went out 
to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide, to blackmail him, to bring out all kinds of stories about his personal life? Did they spy on him 24-7? And if your teacher doesn't know about that, they shouldn't be teaching. You should raise some questions about what kind of information you get when you're taking high school civics or social science. But that's the case. Now, the government, because of modern technology, has a lot more power than it did in the old days before the internet when Martin Luther King was the victim of FBI surveillance. Now, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, these organizations, they, there's unlimited power to frame people, not just you know find out what they're doing, but to frame them, selectively get information to destroy them, try to drive them to suicide. Yes. That's a real problem. And if you don't know that, it just means you get kind of fake history in high school because, you know, it's well documented what happened to Martin Luther King. You know, leading writers about the civil rights movement have put that in their books. But why isn't it in high school textbooks? Why, if we're a free society, wouldn't that be in the textbooks? Well, that's exactly why we're doing this podcast for young people like myself to question, be curious, ask the right questions to those that have studied or, or have seen it from the outskirts beyond textbooks so that we can actually build a better future of democracy. So that's kind of where everything is coming from in that regard. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad he asked that question. It just really hits the nail on the head. I know that interaction may have sounded a bit heated, but this is the reason why I really admire Bob as a professor. He challenges me and expects that I will challenge him back. Let me, let me just say, I don't want the authority of being a professor or of being older or having worked for major publications or having interviewed a point. I don't want that to carry the discussion. I want students to check stuff out. And, you know, maybe I'm all wrong. Maybe I got it wrong. I'm interested, as you know, because I've been your teacher, I'm interested in critical thinking. I'm not interested in establishing myself as an ultimate authority here, okay? And I appreciate you as an interviewer as well as a student because I know you challenge me at every turn, right? Right, I do. You come to my office and challenge me. Yeah, so I welcome that. And we all should welcome that. What I'm concerned about is not that people adopt my point of view or yours, but rather that they question. And fortunately, we have in our constitution protection of our right to question. That's the heart of the American experiment. There are a lot of bad things in the American experiment. We started as a slave society. We destroyed indigenous culture that was here. We committed genocide. We also had an imperialist streak of conquering other nations and interfering in their business and so forth. But at the heart of what's wonderful about the American experiment, the hope of America is the limit of governmental power and the protection of individual rights, you know, and yet we don't talk about that much. And, and that the power of government can be exercised through brute force, which is the case in more overtly totalitarian societies. You're correct in that. And brute force should not be minimized or underestimated as a threat to human existence, you know, including torture, which, by the way, our government has made torture fashionable in the modern world, despite our laws against it. You know, we have been practitioners of torture in the name of the war on terror. But nonetheless, 
One way you can lose your individual freedom is by brute force. The other is by invasion of privacy, manipulation, intimidation. That's the real danger in more sophisticated authoritarian societies. And I'm afraid we are there now in our own society. And so based on what you just said the entire time, Bob, how can we see America differently as a democratic society if other regimes like China or Russia are doing on paper the same exact type of notions and missions and also practice that America has? Like, how can we see America differently than their other particular nations? Oh, there are lots of differences. And by the way, you can't lump Russia and China together. Don't forget, whatever you think of Vladimir Putin, he and yes, he did work in the old Soviet Union for the KGB and so forth, but so did most people the old Soviet Union worked for the government, just, you know, as many people in China, which has a big private sector, still many people do work for the government. And I'm not minimizing the concentration of government power. It happens in Russia that Vladimir Putin came to power with the blessings of the United States, who he was picked by a man named Yeltsin, who was the alternative to the communists. So ironically, even though we're now we seem to be pushing Russia and China back together again, Russia is actually ruled by people who have rejected communism as opposed to China. And what I'm trying to answer your question, though, is what is great about the United States is our written constitution, because we are one of the few nations that actually, because of our founders, because they were opposed to what had once been a fairly popular royal family in England, quite a few of them had respected the English crown, they understood that that was not a model, an enduring model for freedom of the individual. And they embraced the idea of limited government and having a document, the constitution, that would specify that. And it had division of powers. It had protection of the individual. It had rules of the road that would protect the individual and limited government power, you know, separation of powers and so forth. And all of that was a unique contribution to governance in the world of a more enlightened kind. And they were acting not only to the excesses of the king in England, but also what had happened to Rome, what had happened to you know the Greeks and so forth. You could go down the list. And so America is in a way the repository of a great deal of wisdom about overreach of government power. And we should accept that. And our students should look at that as a source of strength. But then they have to ask, is it being honored? It wasn't honored when we had slavery. It wasn't honored when our founders didn't give women the right to vote. It wasn't honored when they put money in the equation and said, you know, only better off people could vote or you know, have the right to it and so forth. So, you know, they contradicted their own impulses quite early on. You know, we had the exclusion laws against Chinese working in this country until, you know, the Second World War, for God's sake. So while I want to praise when you ask what can people look for that's different about America, what's different about America was advertised in our Constitution. And yes, imperfectly, but at the core of it is a heartfelt, very important message that individual freedom is basic to a free society. And that means a profound restraint on government power, on government excess. And unfortunately, we've lost that. 
And we have to struggle now to get that vision back. From your experience previously, Bob, another particular freedom that we have in the U.S. is the freedom of press. So I'd love to hear a little bit more on your thoughts regarding the separation between press and government in the U.S. and how that might intersect with other nation societies as well. Well, one of the great, wonderful things about the founders, I must say, and as I said, there were bad things. I mean, I have great respect for Thomas Jefferson as a thinker and his impulses and everything else, but he also had slaves. And so did George Washington, who I spoke before with admiration, even when he died. And so that cannot be ignored. You cannot enslave people and make a claim to respecting human dignity and the rights of the individual. And you cannot do that when you commit genocide. But nonetheless, they had a wisdom about the excess of power, and they enshrined it in this marvelous document of the Constitution, okay, which also had its flaws, because it accepted slavery until we amended it, and it accepted the denial of basic rights to half the population that happened to be female. I mean, I could go through the whole list. At the core, however, was a suspicion of power, and that is its saving grace. And I think because we have this basic text, this is what the Roberts Court did. John Roberts, you know, appointed by a Republican president, right, and has come down on the side of some Supreme Court decisions that liberal people don't like and, you know, a lot of Democrats don't like. Nonetheless, the Roberts Court, on the question that we're here to discuss, the internet and privacy and freedom, was unequivocal. Modern technology does not trump the demands of the Constitution. It makes them all urgent. As Robert said in his decision, there's more information on your cell phone than there was ever in anybody's home. And if the authorities can get that information, they can destroy your freedom. It's that simple. The same way they could by breaking into your home, rummaging around in your personal effects and papers and so forth. That decision of the Robert Court, Robert's Court, that our Constitution is a living Constitution. It has to accommodate and take the standards and make them alive now for the world of the internet so that we still have a right to our space, our right to our individual freedom, and that technology does not trump that. I am hoping that is going to save this country from a dark totalitarian future. I think that's what we're involved in now. And also, it has to be a caution about nationalism and ultra-patriotism, which is a false kind of patriotism. It's using the claim of protecting the people basically to destroy other people in wars that are not needed and ultimately destroy our own freedom. That's what happened in Rome, right? The Roman legion came home. Goodbye, the Republic. I'm afraid that's what's going to happen here. Or what is happening here? We have a huge military-industrial complex. It has to be fed by constant war. Any high school student listening to this, your country has been at war every day of your life. And war that's basically unchecked. You know, we, we lie to about these wars. The basic information is well withheld from us. And they do it in the name of national security. And it makes a mockery of a free press. Returning to your original question of a free press, a free press is only as free as its ability to get information. Now, 
the reason the mainstream media, including the Washington Post and others, they got a Pulitzer Prize for it. They took Edward Snowden's information and ran them as news stories because they were news. Why isn't Edward Snowden being honored now? He told us what we had a right to know. He told us our government was spying on us at every turn and that this information could be used in ways that were very harmful to our freedom. There should be statues to Edward Snowden everywhere. You're going to tear down these old Civil War racist statues to (laughs) Confederates, generals. Why not put up some to Edward Snowden and people like him, Daniel Ellsberg, who try to tell us the truth about excessive government power destroying our freedom? That's the role of the press. Now, the problem is the press is in a fraught state now because one of the things about the internet, it allowed companies to have access to consumers without going through the media. And the business model of the free press has been destroyed, which for most commercial papers and television, everything was based on advertising. Now these companies that want to sell you stuff can reach you without actually placing an ad in the content creator, in the LA Times or New York Times. And that business model got destroyed. They can reach you while you're looking for travel directions or what have you. And as a result, we have a press that is far less free, is dependent upon billionaires like Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post now, different billionaires who buy the LA Times, other publications. Well, they're not going to report kindly on labor strikes at Amazon or you know Starbucks or what have you, and they'll go along with the military industrial complex because they're participants. Amazon's a very big defense contractor with their cloud technology, and uh, you know so is Google, so is Apple. Yeah, I'm interested in for you to talk about like how big of a conflict of interest this is, and where can young people actually find the truth of information today? Well, first of all. The great thing about the time we lived in is until the internet gets shut down, and the internet that I celebrate in my book, which came out, I think, eight, nine years ago, they know everything about you, was still quite vibrant and open. And even when I was doing truthdig.com, we were able to reach kind of a mass audience. That's been closed off now because in the name of attacking fake news, Okay, they've been able to get or intimidate companies like Google and Apple through Apple News and Twitter and everything to censor people, you know, to block them with their algorithms. And so the Internet is pretty much closed down. You know, people can do work aside, just as it is, you know, not as much as in China or Russia or other Saudi Arabia. So but more effectively. Because most people still think they have a free internet, but it's a heavily censored internet. If you dare challenge, for example, the U.S. position on the war in Ukraine and Russia, whether right or wrong, let's say you dare challenge it, you will be instantly accused in some algorithm of falling in the category of fake news. And boom, your stuff will not reach a large audience. And your writers will not reach a large audience. So we're in a state now where what was most exciting, vibrant, and necessary to freedom about the internet is basically being washed out. It's being heavily regulated. And these private companies are afraid they'll be 
you know, Apple or Google or Facebook, they're afraid of being hauled before yet another congressional committee asking, you know, it started with, we don't want people to be able to hear what Trump is saying because he's all fake news and he lies. Well, come on. What Democratic candidate has not lied? Lying is the name of the game, and the press is supposed to expose these lies. Well, they made Trump seem particularly venal. And, you know, so in the name of getting Trump and fake news, they not only encouraged, but said they would punish these big tech companies if they didn't more heavily censor the available news. And that's what's gone on. I mean, when you tell a former president of the United States like Donald Trump that he can't be on, have his Twitter account, that's a, a extreme censorship, you know, and just because it's a private company, but it's a private company that was allowed to have a monopoly position. These companies like Google and Twitter all are basically in violation of a free market principle. They were allowed to gobble up all of their competition and have, a, you know, total power or if not monopoly power, cartel power, share it with a few others. So if they block you, they're in effect blocking your access to them. You don't even know what some people said because it doesn't make its way into a Google search. It certainly doesn't make its way into a Google news search. I publish a site, sharepost.com. We hardly have any traffic come to us from Google News. I used to have it when I was editor of truthdig.com, but that's not in business now. And, you know, at the, the end of that, they were able to shut us down, deny us many readers. And, and that hasn't even gone, it's cheered by the mainstream traditional media. They like it. Oh, yeah, tell people that they want the truth. You can get it from the New York Times and nowhere else. Well, that's a, a handy advertising gimmick. It doesn't have to be the case. The New York Times, you know, they didn't cover a segregated America very effectively. They've never been very fair about labor unions. <laughs> They've had their prejudices. They lied about our way into the Iraq war. I mean, the New York Times basically was right there with the CIA lying about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq till they were called out on it. But, you know, they got this idea, if you don't go to the big fat cat publications that are basically bankrolled by ultra-millionaires like Carlos uh, you know, from Mexico and so forth, you're not real news or by Jeff Bezos. And so alternative press gets a bad rap and they get censored. And now alternative press even includes anybody who's favorable to Donald Trump, you know, even though 74 million people voted for him. But it, it'll be turned against Democrats, too, when the Republicans are in full power. They'll go after any organization that seems to favor the Democrats. Censorship is a two-edged sword. It always cuts both ways. Gotcha. And in that case, to kind of see if we can have like a call to action, Bob, if you had, for our listeners here who are young people, who are interested and fascinated by history, but want to actually move forward with actionable steps, like what are some takeaways or advice that you have for young people to really just fight misinformation or start to become a little bit of making actually America a more democratic place? Well, first of all, there's enough freedom and room left in our society and in our internet that if you want to do some homework, you can get at it. You can check out everything I said. And I would say that about this podcast. You know, it's on you. Every single statement I've made, Check out George Washington's farewell address or Eisenhower's farewell address. See if I distorted it. 
Did I take it out of context? Did it mean something else? It's very easy to do your own fact-checking. And it's fun, by the way. It's fun to catch your professor distorting or getting it wrong, you know? Victor does it all the time. That's what a good student should do. So the basic thing that's needed is the will to learn, the will to challenge, the will to think for yourself, critical thinking. That's the most important thing you can get in your education is the habit of critical thinking, you know? It's hard with foreign policy. Even official-sounding sources like your government or your major news organizations, they do lie to you. But the internet gives you the way to challenge it, to check it out, look for alternative sources. What's the history? What's the source? What are the facts? What is the logic? Think for yourself. And when you come to realize this is fun to do, this is enjoyable. Yeah. It gives you some sense of empowerment. You will be a better student. You'll have a better life. And this is a skill set that you can use throughout your life. Critical thinking is what makes you human. We are the only species that can do it. It's the most human-like quality to challenge, to think dialectically, to think for yourselves, to gather information, to create hypothesis. This is exciting. And it produces not only great physical sciences, biological sciences, it produces great social science, if it's done. Yes. Well, thank you again, Bob, for the amazing advice that you're imparting on our young audiences. And just to kind of wrap up, we appreciate you coming on to this podcast and talking a little more about your wisdom and experiences learned. Thank you. So, Victor, what has stayed with you the most after that conversation? I think what has stayed with me the most is Bob's energy to put students at the forefront of learning and questioning. He's one of the few professors who has allowed for us to put his teachings into practice as we stand up to challenge and ask all the hard questions. Especially as the innovation of technology advances by the year, it is critical for us to continue setting the boundary between data collection and privacy. To uphold the democracy, a person's freedoms, as listed in the Constitution, are non-negotiable beyond all else. To ask the uncomfortable question is the key source in uncovering the deep truths. Thanks for sharing, Victor. Our producer, Victor Yi, is a junior at the University of Southern California. Robert Shear has over 30 years of experience as a social and political journalist, previously serving as a Vietnam correspondent and for the LA Times. He is now a clinical professor of communication at the University of Southern California. You can follow him on Twitter at Sheer underscore post. That's S-C-H-E-E-R underscore P-O-S-T. We've included a link to his work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we ask, was the fall of the Soviet Union inevitable? Gorbachev from 1987-88 took a highly unusual step. He came to believe that the party was actually not an instrument of power, but an obstacle to change. So he started economic reforms that turned out to be quite misguided and counterproductive. And at the same time, he began to destroy the only instruments that could have allowed him to recalibrate his reforms. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. 
Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernando Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>